I have this little pulse oximeter thing that I use to keep track of like my BPM and, and oxygen and all that crap. And my wife just came in and stuck it on her finger and her heart rate, you know, leveled out. And then I kissed her and it went up six beats Aww. per minute. So scientifically speaking, I still got it. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrobes. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 231 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Coraline Ada Emke. Hi, hi. David Brady. Oh, man, I just had a dream where a bunch of deaf people were heckling a mime. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Uh, quick reminder, go check out railsremoteconf.com. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that's Lee Byron. Howdy, y'all. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Lee. I work at Facebook on our product infrastructure team, where I get to work on all sorts of cool stuff. But most recently, I've been working on a project called GraphQL. Very nice. Maybe we should get a brief introduction to that as well. Sure. GraphQL is a way of moving data between clients and servers that we built here um, a little over three years ago. And it's kind of grown in popularity since then at Facebook. And now it's kind of the way that we build all of our mobile apps. And um, a little over a year ago, we decided to start to open source the chain of technologies that we use internally to build stuff. And chiefly among them was Relay, which is a really awesome user interface programming framework that leverages GraphQL for its data layer. So you use GraphQL to say what data you need, and then you use React to say how you want to render that, and Relay kind of ties all that stuff together. And we realized that open sourcing that without GraphQL doesn't work at all. It just is complete nonsense. So we had to figure out what it meant to take GraphQL, which was this thing really tightly tied to all of Facebook, and untie it. And so that's kind of what I've been busy with for the last 9 to 12 months, and we launched it open source about three months ago. Um, it's kind of been a whirlwind since then. We now have GraphQL implemented in, 
think more than 10 different programming languages, only one of them by us, we open sourced a JavaScript reference implementation. And so the community has kind of picked it up from there. So it's been really exciting. It's cool to see the progress, the community grow. And I'm excited to answer your questions today about GraphQL. I think to start off, uh, maybe we should start by uh, giving it kind of a comparison to REST. I think most of our listeners as Rails developers are familiar with at least the way Rails does REST. So what are the advantages or disadvantages to REST versus GraphQL? Sure. So it's not quite an apples-to-apples apples comparison because you can use GraphQL over REST. But typically, once you start thinking down that path, you realize that most of the mechanisms you use in REST end up being replaced by mechanisms in GraphQL. So what GraphQL looks like is a little query language, sort of similar to SQL, that you send from your client mobile apps to your server. So that, you know, the to the server part is where you kind of start to overlap with REST. So with REST, you kind of think about each bit of data in your mobile application as being an individual resource in your REST API. In GraphQL, you still have these individual resources. We call them GraphQL objects, but they're allowed to link to one another directly rather than through additional URLs, which is typically the way you'll see REST APIs do it. I know it's pretty commonly how you'll see Rails-based REST APIs illustrate links between these different resources. The kind of major breakthrough that we had with GraphQL is by specifying exactly what information you want, you can kind of traverse from object to object, hence the graph part, we're traversing our graph of data, and get back in a single response everything that you asked for without having to do follow-up. You know, I loaded that URL, and then I got this ID, and then I got to go load the next URL, and then I get another ID, and I got to go load the URL after that, you know, to do the the deeply nested, get my friends, and then get the last few groups that they visited, and then get the top three members of those groups, you know, you might find yourself doing multiple round trips. So avoiding multiple round trips is one of the primary motivations for the, all of the work that we're doing right now. And since you're specifying which fields you want to get back, the payload can be a lot smaller than a REST-based implementation too, right? That's exactly right. So there's no kind of predefined payload response shape. You know, there, we don't have an equivalent of a select star or something like that. You always say exactly what you want, nothing more, nothing less, which is actually really nice because it means when you have your description of the data that you want right next to the UI that you're rendering and you go and you kind of refactor things and you delete a little bit of UI, you know really obviously that you can go and delete the data as well because it's, it's right there and then your response size is going to be a little bit smaller. And as you add new features, and this is something that's been really important to us at Facebook, is as you add new features that require new data, you can just add new fields in your query for that new data, and the endpoints don't send that new data to all of your existing clients. So we have now a little over a thousand different versions of the Facebook mobile apps in, in production use, like we're seeing people regularly using them, including ones that we've launched three years ago, all of which use GraphQL, all of which have slightly different queries, and none of which break as we continue to develop. And we don't have to kind of muck around with version number checking. And especially that code on the server can get pretty gross. Even Rails can't save you from the, you know, check the version to see if it's below this number and then send that field, otherwise this field. All that stuff kind of disappears, which ends up being really nice. So you're basically implementing the best practice of extending an interface but not ever changing it. Yeah. 
Exactly. One thing I, I like about this is that it helps you also avoid some of the stupid things that I see occasionally in people who start out with kind of the boilerplate rails uh, scaffold or rails page where it shows all of the fields. And so it'll show, you know, because it does a select star. And so it comes back and it shows the password hash and the password salt or uh -huh. something like that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's all <laughs> encrypted, but it's still not a good idea. Yeah. Does your application really need that? And are you comfortable with someone sniffing your traffic, seeing that? Yeah, exactly. Information. The other thing that's really important that GraphQL does and this isn't necessarily counter to REST. In fact, a lot of REST APIs also do this, is GraphQL is not really designed to tie directly against your database. So it's pretty uncommon in a well-made GraphQL server that you would expose a password salt or an hash in the first place because why is your mobile application requesting that? That seems nonsensical. And there's all kinds of other things, like you have fields of information that are derived from other fields of information. So at Facebook... Underneath every story is a little sentence that says, Chuck, Jesse, Lee, and five other people like this. And we generate that on the server, and it's, of course, generated based on fetching a bunch of other information. We don't store that line of text in a database. So GraphQL maps against application code, um, which means when you call into a field in GraphQL, when you query a field in GraphQL, you're actually calling a function on the back end rather than kind of directly sending that as a query to something in SQL or uh, Mongo, DB, or something like that. And so it kind of eradicates that entire class of problems of, whoopsie, I exposed fields from my database that I didn't mean to. So one thing that I'm looking at here, uh, I, I have a ton of questions about this, but one thing that I'm looking at here is that it seems like you could send all of your GraphQL queries then to the same endpoint. So do you do that, or do you have a different endpoint for, say, fetching users versus posts versus likes versus pages? At Facebook, we have one endpoint that serves all of our GraphQL, and that's because the number of types that we couldn't fetch just keeps growing. And adding different resource URLs for each would quickly get untenable as our applications would be fetching from all of these different URLs and trying to figure out what to do with them. Another nice thing that you can do is in a single query, you can request for multiple things in parallel. And HTTP2 and, and request pipelining can kind of handle that for you at the network layer, but it's kind of nice to know exactly what shape of response you'll get from a single request when you fetch three users, two pages, a group, and one other thing from a single endpoint. And it also makes it kind of transparent to the protocol that you're using to actually connect to the internet. So whether you're using HTTP, whether you're using some push protocol like MQTT or something like that, you can kind of keep using the same GraphQL query language and keep maintaining these properties of being able to fetch multiple things, being able to move from object to object kind of seamlessly. But GraphQL is built in such a way that you don't have to only have one endpoint. If you wanted to have, this is the one spot where we get all your, our users, this is the one spot where we get all our pages, uh, you could certainly do that. And I've seen people build, I would call them, like hybrid REST GraphQL servers, or maybe like GraphQL mixed in with your REST. So it's very much a RESTful service where you have a URL for every resource, but then you can select which fields of that resource you actually want um, via GraphQL. So I think that's pretty interesting too. And there's certainly some pros and cons to doing them each way. You get a little bit of the RESTful win of having one endpoint per, but just having a single endpoint ends up being pretty simplifying for your mobile client code. Yeah. Do you have any security problems like protecting that endpoint from, because I mean, it seems like that endpoint is now basically a database prompt 
how do you manage things like Sam loading a user, but I'm just an end user, so I don't want to see I don't know like like hidden information stuff that friends can't see on friends on Facebook like I can't see your gender, your date of birth, whatever. Sure. But if I'm loading my record, I can see it. Or if I'm an admin, I can see everything. Is that meant to be handled elsewhere in the stack? Yeah, so we handle that elsewhere in the stack, and this is actually a pretty important reason why GraphQL does not map directly to a database, and instead it maps to application code. So presumably that means mm. in your application code, you are doing, we call them privacy checks, but you know uh, permissions checks of some kind to make sure that whoever is logged in into your account is actually allowed to fetch that information in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, at Facebook, we bake this into our whole application layer, which just removes the possibility for a mistake at any layer in our software stack, regardless of whether it's a mobile client trying to fetch information over GraphQL or just something else that's happening on the server. If you load some information and that information now exists in our application server's memory for your request, that meant that you were allowed to see it and it's now safe to use that information anywhere else in the system. Rails really has some nice parallels to this with its permissions checking as well. So if you kind of think of GraphQL as something that can layer on top of Active Record and then you're using the kind of same permission checks you would want to use with Active Record, then you're going to be in good shape. Okay. So I'm wondering if you can kind of walk me through how the stack works then a little bit, because a minute ago I was thinking that I'm looking at the Ruby GraphQL gem, and it looks like it's structured so that you have some application endpoint that is backed by, you know, like a Rails controller. And that controller then composes a GraphQL request and does the load and then renders it as JSON. But what you've just described sounds to me like maybe JavaScript is is handing off a query meant to go to a controller. Am I reading that completely wrong? Like, where is GraphQL in the stack? Can you walk me through, like, I click on a button, what layer Mm -hmm. in the stack? How does that get all the way to the database and then all the way back? Is there a simple block diagram you can walk through? Yeah, I can talk through that. Thank you. I can't speak directly to the... Ruby implementation of GraphQL because I that's fine. didn't I didn't write it, um, but I can fine. tell you we have, in we theory, have smart how listeners. Smart listeners, you guys can figure this out. Yep. So GraphQL is one of these interesting pieces, and then it fits between the server and the client and the stack. So there's a little bit of stuff happening on both sides. Most stuff is happening on the server, though. So the client's responsibility is really just to assemble this query, and you can do that manually by writing out the whole query. You could do that by using a tool like Relay, which lets you kind of write queries in lots of tiny little pieces co-located to your UI, and then it will assemble them up for you into one query, and it'll do that in a smart way. And then that gets sent off to the server. So the server, it gets a string of text. It parses that, so you have your kind of typical compiler front-end kind of stack here, where you have the string of text in, you parse it, you make sure that it's actually valid GraphQL, um, and now you have an AST. You take that AST that represents the query, and now we can do cool stuff with that. So we can walk over that AST and we do something called validation. So we walk over the AST and we basically say that every field that you've asked for is a field that exists. Everything that you've asked for is unambiguous. So there's some things that could be kind of syntactically correct, but ambiguous. And we make sure that you can't actually submit a query that looks like that. Um, and once that has gone through and we say, you know, everything checks out, this query looks great, then we run it through a piece of the stack called the executor. So the executor takes in this AST that represents your query, steps over it from the top all the way to the bottom, kind of in a a depth-first search kind of traversal. And every time it gets to a field, it looks into this thing that you define on the the server 
called your schema. Mm-hmm. And the schema is just a way of describing every kind of type in your server. And th- these kind of mentally at least map really well to active record classes. Right. And each field is kind of a property on one of those. And when you call into one of these fields, when you request one of these fields, the executor will look into your schema and say, what function should I call for this? And you actually provide a list of functions. Whether the library does this for you, and oftenly that's actually the case, or you're actually providing like a Lambda function or something to actually do this on behalf of GraphQL. But you're kind of providing tons and tons of tiny functions, one function for every field of every type in your system. And so then there's, once you're in a function, you can really do anything. But what's pretty common is that you kind of, you know, the first argument to the function is going to be the object that you're interested in, and you're probably just going to do a property lookup. So, you know, 90% of GraphQL fields look like that. Um, and then some of them have to say, oh, I need to go get that from a database. And so that might map to, you know, active record needing to load up a new object, and it's going to, under the hood, execute a SQL query. But GraphQL itself is never, doesn't really know anything about SQL or MongoDB or any other database backend. It just knows about calling functions. And so it's up to you to provide the appropriate functions to map between the query and the data that you need. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can kind of dive into the corners if there are more questions. Well, I definitely see the advantages here because then what it does is it divorces a little bit the logic of figuring out what data I need from the actual connecting to the database, which are two different concerns legitimately. And so um, you kind of get this clean separation of concerns, which we don't always get with Active Records since everything kind of piles into the model in a lot of cases. That's true. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. What you end up seeing in that executor is this top-down querying. So, you know, if I were to say, get my user object, it would want to go to the database, request that user object, come back. Um, and then it's gonna, I can access fields, so I can say, give me the name of that thing. And it's going to assume that when we fetched from the database that it had a name property on the resulting row or active record object or whatever. And I can just access that property. But as soon as I kind of dig deeper and say, you know, well, who's my best friend? Then that's probably going to, you know, it might be an ID in the active record or database row, and I'll have to go back to the database to load that information. So it kind of divorces, as you were saying, it divorces the actual mechanism of going to the database from the information you need such that it's requesting these information, but it's requesting them in kind of dependent waves. So all the information that it's capable of requesting in one go, it'll go to the database once and get all that information. But if there's dependent information, like I can't know the best friend of me unless I know who I am first, so I got to fetch that and then later follow up with the second query. So divorcing these two things means that you end up writing far fewer join query kind of operations. Mm-hmm. So then it sounds like, well, it, it no, you've... I'm sorry, it sounds like, but by which I mean you've made it very clear. <laughs> GraphQL then does not end run around, say, active record. It stops at the border of the database and then says, active record, I want you to go handle these things. And so then all these functions that you, you have to resolve fields and build queries in a Rails application, that would be some layer that, that you've written that would basically say, okay, here's how we translate GraphQL into active record. Right. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly okay. right. So one other thing that I'm seeing here is that then there is a GraphQL implementation on both the back end and the front end. Critically, you have to have a GraphQL implementation on the back end, right? Yes. So you you have to have a way to respond to these queries. Right. But you um, need on the, something on the front, on the front end, end. You have a lot more flexibility. 
that's kind of like saying, do you need a SQL client for your front end? It might add some convenience, but at the end of the day, you can always just like write a string and then send it to the DB and get a response back. So, you know, it really, it kind of behaves similarly to REST in that you load a URL with this request and it comes back with JSON. And if you're comfortable assembling these query strings yourself and taking that JSON and just using it, then you're good. You're off to the races. But you can get a little added value by having some nicer tools to use on the client. Relay is the one that we use internally for our JavaScript frontends. We have other tools that we use for iOS and Android apps, and we're actually uh, working now to kind of untangle those from Facebook-specific isms so that we can open source those as well. They just add some additional cool stuff that you can do. One of the really nice things that you can do is, since GraphQL describes these types, it's a strong typed uh, query language, we can, ahead of time, ask for all of the possible types, and then on the clients, we can do auto-generation of model objects, auto-generation of fast parsers, and auto-generation of a couple other artifacts that you would want, such that the people who are actually using these things don't kind of use them as, oh, I have untyped arrays and objects that are just my raw parse JSON. Instead, they have rich model objects, um, and they never have to actually write that code. We can auto-generate that code for them. I have a question about the type system. I'd like you to talk about the decision to make it strongly typed, and also what sort of implications does that have for the server side that it is a typed system? Sure. So the reason that we wanted a strongly typed system here, uh, there are a couple of reasons. One is what I was just talking about, the ability to take that information, carry it to the clients, and then do useful things like code generation. Another is validation. So a lot of database query languages are also strongly typed, right? So SQL is strongly typed. If you try to ask for a column that doesn't exist, it will yell at you that you can't do that, right? And each column has a particular type further in. An interesting th thing that we've done beyond SQL is more than just scalar types, we can say, oh, this is actually a pointer to that other kind of type. So our type system looks and feels much more similar to maybe like C structs. On the server, what this does is it means that you can have a clear guarantee that a query coming in is never going to ask for something that you didn't explicitly define. So because you define, I have like this set of fields that are all just raw property getters, and then I have these handful of extra fields that are lambda functions that when they come in, I'll run my function and get some value back. I know that that is the like total set of all possible things that can happen, which means I can make guarantees for safety, I can make guarantees for performance, I can make guarantees for like server stability that I otherwise couldn't if I said, you know, any arbitrary field that comes in, kind of, you know, duct type it and see what works. Does that create some implications for um, preserving the API, though? Like if you need to change a type for whatever reason? Or is that just something you just don't do? Oh, that's a really great question. Yeah, so this is how we do versioning. So consider this. We launched GraphQL three years ago, and we're using the same version of GraphQL, the same type system today that we were using three years ago. And if you boot up a version of our iOS app that we shipped three years ago, it'll still work. So we don't use version numbers. And basically, that means that we can never delete any field that we've shipped. In order for everything to stay working that's shipped before, our type system has to remain additive only. So when we want to add new things, we just have to make sure that we're adding things in a way that doesn't conflict with something that already existed. 
And if you want to change the type of something, which actually in practice happens pretty rarely, it's been three years and I field a lot of the questions from Facebook engineers about how we should operate around these things. And I get, you know, oh crap, we need to change the type of this thing maybe once every two or three months. And actually most of the time that it comes up, what is happening is they haven't actually shipped anything yet. So they're working on their products and they haven't launched and they realize that they made a mistake in their API layer and they want to fix it. And you know what? Okay, fine. Technically, you're breaking the API, but you're only breaking it for the people who are testing your app internally. Eh, that's fine. Once you've shipped it, no, you can't change that. So if you want to change the type of a field, what you end up doing is adding a new field with the new type that you want, and you just kind of maintain the behavior of the old field. We have a mechanism we can use for deprecating fields. So if you're using them somewhere on the client, um, we'll kind of squiggly underline them and say, don't use that, use this instead. Um, and that way, kind of progress can move on. We can keep using new fields, new types, everything new, but only ever adding to our API design. I find it interesting that you've gone with this sort of type safety situation where GraphQL, at least on the front end, is running in JavaScript, which is not a strongly typed language. And in our situation on the back end with Ruby, we are also not in a, a strongly typed situation. So I'm assuming then that there's just some class checking or other sort of interface checking to make sure that it it is what it says it is. So we actually have a type checking mechanism built into the GraphQL semantics themselves. So you, we don't actually need a host language that has strong typing. Okay. If your host language does have strong typing, then you can do some pretty interesting things where you tie the two together and that can make some of the work involved with actually kind of defining your GraphQL That's server. David just pointed out, pointed out, and yes, I used the wrong term, but I couldn't think of what the right one was. He says Ruby is strongly typed, but not statically typed. Uh, yes. And and that's what I meant, the statically typed language. And GraphQL is actually kind of similarly so. It's, it's actually pretty similar to Ruby. So there's some nice things that you can do with Ruby classes. I don't know if we've implemented all of the cool ideas that we've had for Ruby in particular, with GraphQL, I'll have to go chat with the guy who's working on GraphQL Ruby about that. Um, but I know he's already done a bunch of the nice kind of, you know, we'll do some of the boilerplate work for you since Ruby has some of these things built in. But our reference implementation is in JavaScript, as you said. We use GraphQL on the client in JavaScript with Relay, but we also use GraphQL on the client in iOS and Android, which use Objective-C, Swift, and Java, which all have typed types mm -hmm. in their languages. So having the semblance of typing, but not requiring the host language to support it directly kind of gives us the ability to have kind of a best of both worlds approach, where if the clients want the types, they have them. If they don't want the types, then they just have JSON. And for the servers that are hosting this stuff, you have to spec the types regardless of whether your language supports them or not, such that the clients have these capabilities. And if your server does support types, so at Facebook, we use hack, which is kind of a future derivation of PHP. And the hack language is full of strong types. And we use those to kind of make the process of adding new GraphQL fields and types much, much simpler. Are they more like contracts than types, really? That's a perfectly fine way to think about it as well. Uh, since they're checked at, at runtime, at least in some languages, because the GraphQL language itself just, it looks a little bit like JSON, right? Curly braces and words. Mm-hmm. So GraphQL, yes, the, the queries themselves, there are a handful of places where you'll see a type name show up, but most of the time we are inferring the type. So it's still a statically typed and strongly and statically typed from the queries point of view, 
and that when you submit a query before running the query, we can tell you if you asked for a field that doesn't exist on the on a type. And we can do that because since every field has a return type, and then the next kind of set of fields query against that return type, um, we can kind of walk that all the way down. And if one of those returns a, a type that's an interface or a union, say, then we'll make sure that the fields you're requesting are first, you know, first you do like a type check before you do that. And we have a mechanism for doing that called um, inline fragments, which lets you say, you know, hey, I'm going to fetch something and uh, I don't know what it is, but it has this ID. And there are some places where that happens. So, you know, you mention something in a comment. You can mention groups, you can mention users, you can mention pages. They're all mentions. And in the query, we'll say, you know, okay, well, we want the text of that mention. And we can get that kind of uniformly across everything, and that's in the type. But I can't say, get me the profile picture of that thing, because I don't know if it's a profile. So first I have to say, are you a profile? And if so, then get the profile picture. And that will kind of guarantee that only on that type will I request that field, which limit kind of ambiguity spots or overfetching when something that's not a profile but somehow miraculously specifies a field with the same name. All that stuff kind of disappears when you can statically type check these things first. But it definitely is a contract. That's the whole point, right? API is a contract, and having that contract be stable through the constant iteration of the server and the client, that's like the crux of the whole thing, keeping things stable as to their contracts. Yeah, I love how GraphQL is naturally backwards compatible just because it's so declarative. The client yeah. says, I want exactly this, and the server doesn't have to count versions or anything. It just gives it exactly that. Yeah, yeah and it makes implementing it much nicer. You know, The first time you implement a REST-like API that needs to do version tracking, it feels great because you're not actually doing any version tracking yet. But if you have ever had to work on a REST API that's more than two or three years old, and that product you know, went through lots of iterations and grew and added things and removed things, then you're in for a headache, right? Because you have to check versions on every single little thing to figure out exactly what to build. And it can be really a pain to maintain that thing. Yeah. I worked at a, actually Chuck and I worked at at Crime Reports together and we had a case where we had to expire a contract. I mean, like, and, and I like contract in this case because we had to expire it like in a very legal sense where a customer called us and said, you are giving out a piece of information here that you cannot be giving out. And this company was called Crime Reports, and our customers were law enforcement agencies. So when they say, you have to stop giving out this data, they don't say, or we'll call the cops. They say, or we'll call us. <laughs> um, and there's ways to work around it. But I mean, yeah, it's I like what you're talking about, where you avoid the versioning hell of like you get a request and you're like, oh, is this version one, version two, version three or version four? Because we're going to support them all differently because there's different logic in three and that sort of thing. Having things fall off the back end, like we had to make version one go away. And so we just added a little bit to the iOS app that it would just come up and it would just check the version very early on. And if the version was, you know, this, if it was pulling down this data that it couldn't have, you would just get this immediate dialogue that says, this version of the crime reports app is no longer current. Please update the current version from the app store. And they had to go do another quick download. And, uh, and, and that way we had, we had like two versions that we had to support because anything older than that, we just deprecated. Yeah. So we can turn off individual fields and we've done that before where we're building some product and then we realize down the road that 
some element of that product is doing something that it shouldn't and is old. And what we really want to do is just kind of turn it off. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a bummer if you had to say, oh, you're using this slightly ancient version of this application and we're just going to force you to upgrade. Well, there's actually a bunch of circumstances where that's not possible. Um, yeah. If you're on an older device that is yeah. limited in bandwidth or limited in hard drive space and your app, like we've had circumstances and this is maybe a Facebook problem where the hard drive space of the mobile phone is less than 2x the size of the binary required to run right. Facebook, which right. means once you've downloaded Facebook, you can never update Facebook because you can't keep the like current binary and the updated binary in memory mm -hmm. at the same time mm -hmm. to actually perform the update. Um, and so those people are basically stuck until they get a new phone sometime in the next few years. So we basically commit to maintaining very old versions of our apps. Uh, yeah. But what it means is when you want to kind of kill off one of these fields, uh, we make the assumption that almost any field can return back null. And so we program pretty defensively on our clients against yeah. that as well, which ends up being nice when you want to do something like that. So, you know, say we were building a GraphQL version of, of crime reports and you're like, uh-oh, this like one bit of information is bad. We should not mm -hmm. do that. You could go in and find the one function where it's doing that and just kind of like comment out the implementation and type in yeah. return null. And like you would just be done. And it didn't matter if... Do we remember, was that only version one or was it versions one through seven? That's I can't cool. remember. It's just like, it doesn't matter which versions of the apps were creating that. It's just like that field is now gone. Yeah, that's actually really awesome. Building the client forward to be fault tolerant turns out to be essential either way, right? You either have to be able to handle a null field or you have to handle this version check because we, we really did have some version zero apps running out there on iPhones that did not check versions. They just tried to grab the data and they would crash. And yeah. we, we would get support calls and we're like, yeah, you got to upgrade to the new version, which will tell you to upgrade to the even newer version. <laughs> and I like this GraphQL notion of like, you could actually change the function so that every time you hit that field, instead of getting back no data, you get back, you know, unknown or you get back no longer available or, or NA or, I mean, sure. you, you could actually send back data yeah. just or just an empty string. And yeah, totally. Yeah, that would be very cool. And it's kind of a one-liner to do that. There's no like, oh, we got to add these version check logic and do this. It's like, no, you just go like there's this two-line function that describes that bit of information and we just changed it to return some static bit of information that is not going to cause us legal problems or whatever yeah. in your case. The other yep. thing that's kind of gnarly about versions is our mental model for versions is often that they're linear, right? You, go, you get version one, two, three, four, five, six, seven onward. Right. But in practice, version numbers kind of fork and fork and fork and create yes. trees, which makes checking them pretty difficult. So before GraphQL, we had something that looked much more similar to RESTful API service. And for a while, really, our only native app that was consuming this was our iOS app. Um, you know, this is years ago. And the big news that happened is that Android launched and started to get popular. Um, and so we built an app for that. And now we have these kind of two things running in parallel, but they're not perfect ports of one another. In fact, there's some features that are kind of Android specific and some features that are iOS specific that take advantage of the features that those OSs provide. And that means that the payloads of information would need to know not just kind of this progressively counting up number of version, but like, are you iOS or Android? And then what version are you? And now we also have Windows Phone and we also support like a couple other platforms. And so like, 
you have all these fork points and then you split by product. So we have not just Facebook, but we have Messenger and we have our ads management applications and we have kind of over a dozen different applications. And then each of those run across each platform and that, but they all kind of request similar information about yeah. Facebook users and, and what they're connected to. And yeah. so you end up with this like huge forked version tree. Um, and some of that is just that we have a number of products and we make sure we support all of our platforms, but you know, most shops that are building native apps that hit a server support most platforms and often they have more than one product. So this is a thing that happens. Like checking those yeah. versions of the server, yeah. it gets gnarly. It's really hard to maintain. So I've got a related question to that. I'm currently working at Cover My Meds and I love it and we're hiring, by the way, uh, plug. And we're in a, a situation that I call dancing with the elephant where we're working with really big healthcare companies. But we'll have one client that will use our, our REST API. And they want to use it just exactly straight up the way it is in the documentation. But we have this other client that, uh, let's see, I can't say anything negative about our customers. Well, let me just say we have a client that is using our REST API in a different manner. And they are so big that it was easier for us to just change the way our API works for them. So we actually have some conditional code that says if this client is client X... When you retrieve this field, munge it in this way. Oh, man. That okay. sounds nightmarish. Oh my it, god! It, Yikes! Yeah, it, it's it, it is yeah. nightmarish, but it's the kind of it's, <laughs> it's the kind crazy. of night it's the kind of that nightmare. Happens, it's yeah, it's um, the kind actually, of some of my favorite kind of technical warts are these special cases in operating systems that work around kind of the mistaken use or you know forceful use of APIs in a way that they weren't originally oh, yeah. intended. And cause issues, and then the you know the OS upgrades and makes new versions, and they realize they have to continue to support those weird versions as they existed. Yeah, the particular wart that I'm thinking of, it's a multi-million dollar wart, right? I mean, I can fix that wart, but a couple million dollars a year of revenue will walk out the door as soon as I do. So we're happy to have that wart. Uh, <laughs> we're happy to have that. That's something but, I never thought I'd hear anyone say. <laughs> it, it, you know what? You can freeze them off. In Freakonomics, they found out that about 10% of people are incorruptible, no matter how much you tempt them or how guaranteed they are to get away with it. They will not cheat in whatever they're doing, whether it's, you know, remembering to, you know, I'm not going to refactor my code or I'm going to actually steal money or, you know, what, whatever. In the case of sumo wrestling was the specific case where they discovered this. 5% of the population are incorrigible. No matter, <laughs> no matter how little the payoff or how guaranteed they are to get caught, they will cheat. The other <laughs> 85%, we have a price. <laughs> and that's what he determined is that, that everybody else, there is a price point at which the value of the reward and the likelihood, uh, you know, the minimal likelihood of not getting caught is enough that we will cheat. And so when I say, Everything is a trade-off. What I'm saying is I'm for sale. I'm one of those people that I know, like Calvin and Hobbes, right? Everybody has a price. Mine's 75 cents. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you want this wart that's going to make it so that we can interact with, you know, the number two or three largest player in the healthcare informatics field. Okay, here's a wart. That's not a defect. That's a feature. Yeah, I yeah. would rather my code be useful than right. Yeah, I'd rather my code make money then be useful or right. <laughs> yeah. I think the trick is just 
kind of calculating the trade-off because there's a maintenance cost mm-hmm. to that wart. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you kind of balance, well, how expensive is the maintenance cost of this thing? And if you realize that, you know, oh, that poor sucker is not paying us nearly enough to keep this around, then you're going to kind mm-hmm. of force him out of his ways into doing things the correct way and yeah. you'll fix the wart. Or you'll canonize the wart and make it the right way. Or you'll canonize the wart. But then, you know, that means canonizing a maintenance cost as well. Yeah. When I say canonize, what I mean is you make it the official way. And so you kind of streamline the maintenance because it now becomes the happy path. And the people that are using it the old correct way, they now become the special case. And we try to, you know what I mean? Like canonizing the board is where you like wean the people off that you thought were the right users and that kind of thing. Yeah. Which actually leads perfectly to my next question, which is how can we do this with GraphQL? I've got two different clients that are accessing the same thing. We don't have versioning. We just have different data types. Is there a way that I can make it so that in one context, a field comes back one way, but in another context, it comes back another? Or is that just stupid and wrong and I should have two different named fields and somewhere else in my application, I should just pick which field I want? So, of course, the answer is that you can do anything because computers. Sure. Um, <laughs> But I'll bring it back to the maintenance cost argument. And the thing that has the least maintenance cost is to have different fields with different behaviors. And the reason that the maintenance cost is less is actually a little bit maybe surprising. It's not necessarily maintenance costs on the server. It's about the predictability of your API. So Mm -hmm. what we found, we have cases like this because, you know, we make mistakes and we go, oh, shit, let's just kind of hack it on the server to make it work. So same kind of deal, except instead of a major client that you don't want to lose money from, it's ourselves that we're shooting in the feed. So we'll do that. And then we'll kind of forget that we have added that server hack to make that client still work. And then that client will become large and popular and we'll have more developers. And then developer will kind of start to investigate a problem. And they'll be kind of confused as to why something is happening. And then they'll copy their query and they'll go over to the website and paste it in some tools to help debug that query. And then they'll get wildly different results. And they're like, Mm -hmm. what's going on here? And it turns out, well, the thing that someone had done to, quote, hack around it is, you know, they could do anything because computers. And so they took the user agent header and did sniffing on that. So they just kind of reached out into the global space, Uh, grabbed that header did sniffing, and then changed the behavior of a bunch of fields based on whether or not your user agent was coming from this particular application. Right. You're running IE6, so we need to make everything look like crap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, little known Uh, fact, the the internet looks just fine on Internet 6. It's just everybody has a flag. We've just all conspired to make it look awful if we detect that you're running IE6. (laughs) That's definitely not untrue. I thought that was a feature. Mm -hmm. It is kind of a feature. And so that ends up just being really confusing for people who are having to use the API when they use it in one context and it works differently from when they use it in another context. And it is unclear as to what variable changed because headers are relatively invisible to your clients. They don't usually think about, oh, of course, I'm also sending headers along with my request. And actually something that ended up causing us trouble is when we added new avenues for fetching GraphQL other than HTTP, we realized kind of the hard way that these other avenues didn't have headers. And we were using those headers to do logic. And now that we're sending them over push channels and things like that, all of a sudden these old clients start to break. Yeah, And so we had to come up with this like gross hacky way of adding headers to push channels for those specific things. And it was gross. So avoiding that and doing it kind of the, maybe it makes your API slightly uglier, 
mm-hmm. but the maintenance cost is going to be much lower. But of course, yeah. you know, yeah, you can do anything, computers. Yeah. Okay, so one last quick question, then Chuck has another direction he wants to take us. But in GraphQL, can I structure a field to be a derived field off of another field? To give an example, like this client that where we have this wart, right? I'm going to make something up just to protect myself from the innocent. Let's say most of our clients expect phone numbers to come back as 10-digit decimal strings. This other client expects three digits, a period, three digits, a period, and four digits. Clearly, we can drive one field from the other. Can I tell GraphQL to do that, to give me two fields where one field is calculated off the other? Or does the data come through GraphQL all in one layer and there's no... It's not necessarily a self-introspection layer. Like you might have a trial problem where you can't derive from a field that doesn't exist yet. So to answer your question in the broadest sense, you absolutely can have two fields where one is a derived information from another. In fact, that's a cool. very common case. Okay, to, be cool. more spe- to be more specific, you can't have GraphQL query itself while running okay, because it can create some kind of badness of into sure. loops and stuff like that. But because each field is backed by a function, Presuming that both of those kind of side-by-side fields have functions that have access to the same information, Mm -hmm. then this becomes easy. So say, I don't know, it's a phone number of a contact. And so a contact Mm -hmm. is your model object, active record, whatever. And the phone number one, it's going to be the, you know, identity function version of get the phone number, which is just going to access the property and then call it a day. Okay. The data is all there for the entire record before the functions run? Yes. Uh, okay, so, yeah, that makes so sense. Presumably one level sooner you would have said, get me this contact, and it would have gone to the database and gotten the whole contact row. And right. then step later say, okay, now I want the phone number, and it's just going to grab the already fetched column from the row that you just got. Perfect. Um, and if I want phone number dotted as another field, I could provide that as a Lambda function and say, okay, model object in, what do you want? And you're just like, ah, actually, okay, I'm going to get phone number, and then I'm going to pass it into this weird function that does dots and dashes and right. parentheses. Right. And because your functions are also loaded in memory, they can actually call each other as long as they ultimately go back to the data, which is now loaded. So you could have a phone number with extension that calls phone number dotted, adds a hyphen, and then goes to the model and says, give me the four-digit extension. Totally. Once you're calling a function, you've got your entire programming language to flex, which means you can really do a lot. Okay. I've been holding out on this, but GraphQL now now gets my seal of approval because it sounds freaking (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Yay. So one question that I have, the way that I heard about GraphQL initially was through Relay and React, which are both JavaScript libraries. And so I'm wondering, was this ecosystem kind of built up around Relay and React and then extracted from that? And if so, what assumptions have been made about the way this works based on Relay and React? And then I've got another question to follow that up with. Okay, so yes and no. GraphQL was originally built before React was ever invented. So it was built to support our iOS and ultimately Android application. Android followed by about six months. But we developed GraphQL explicitly to build a much better iOS application. So it was really built with iOS in mind first. We followed on with Android and we found and fixed a handful of minor assumptions that we had made about iOS. And between those two platforms, it was really generic. React came about a year later So we've been living in the age of React for the last two years or so. And Relay is about one and a half years old within the company and, you know, only a couple months old in open source land. And Relay is about tying together GraphQL and React. So we were kind of envisioning, 
how could we build iOS Android style applications but use JavaScript and React Native is one of the pieces that came out of that. Relay was another one of the pieces that came out of that line of questioning. And then as those pieces of technology raced towards open source, we realized that GraphQL had to go with the rest for that whole suite to make sense because they used GraphQL. So in that sense, yes, there's certainly an ecosystem that's starting to form where these technologies, while usefully, while being useful in dependence of one another, kind of click together nicely to create kind of a horizontal platform of technologies that work well together. And so they really had to go out kind of close to each other, uh, or Relay and GraphQL in particular had to go out close to each other to make sense. I guess the other question then is, can I use Relay and or GraphQL with something like Angular or Ember or Backbone or something? GraphQL, absolutely. You can definitely use GraphQL with any of those things. I mean, if, if they're capable of sending a network request and capable of handling JSON, then you can use GraphQL with them. Relay is very, very tightly tied to React. So you can't use Relay without using React. In fact, by using Relay, you're definitely using React because it's how it is built. But there's lots of really cool work that's being done in those other frameworks to make things that work kind of similar to Relay, where you specify the data that you need directly alongside the components that you're loading. And I'm forgetting the name of them, but we recently had some chats with the Google folks working on Angular 2 who were coming up with all these kind of similar ideas that we were having for Relay and that kind of made us excited that we're kind of running in parallel on these thoughts. So the concepts at least are kind of jumping outside of the software that we've written. And hopefully I would love to see GraphQL become kind of a common point along a lot of these things. That would be awesome. And GraphQL, when I first heard about it, I was like, that sounds weird. And then we had that conversation with um, Nick and Joe, and it was like, okay, this is something I really got to dig into. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes so much sense. I yeah. only I only learned about it just doing prep for this show. I think I had heard about it before, but never really understood or never dug into it at all. But after digging into it, I'm like, wow, this is really cool, and I want a project where I can use this. There's a very similar system called Falcor by Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's got a lot of the same ideas behind it. Mm-hmm. They make slightly different trade-offs, yes. but they have the same basic goals. Yep. One of the really interesting trade-offs that they make differently is about bandwidth concerns. So uh, with GraphQL, you know, we're trying as much as we can to make as few round trips as possible and to really pack in as much information in each round trip because we're servicing mobile clients that are out there on shitty networks. Netflix assumes that you're plugged in into, you know, into a TV where you're about to stream some HD content and they assume that your latency and bandwidth are very high. And so that ends up with pretty different trade-offs, but it's pretty interesting to see how that ends up changing your system. But the whole idea of like, you have information on the server, you need to get that information to the client to use it in your views. How do you do that? Like we've come to very, very similar conclusions on that, which is super, super cool. It means that we're kind of onto the same technical zeitgeist, I guess. Our teams have chatted with each other as well. And so that's, that's always exciting. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Joffer gave a talk on Falcor at Angular Remote Conf. And it, I was just sitting there going, Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And then part of me went, isn't this kind of like GraphQL? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Similar problems to solve. Yeah. yeah. And even kind of similar solutions. Yep. Yeah, very much so. Did they open source Falcor? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And they've kind of mandated, they're much more of the opinion that you should only have one endpoint. Yeah, I think that's probably for the best. 
one endpoint makes a lot of things much simpler. Yep. Yeah, I don't I don't see it making a lot of sense segmenting by your types of data. I might see it make a little bit of sense if you're dealing with like different access levels or something. So we kind of think about it as different access points for different type systems. Um, hmm. So we have a different type system for Oculus. And so Oculus uses GraphQL and they have a completely different type system. And so we have a different endpoint. Oh, that could make sense. It's nice alternative um, versioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah, you're thinking about the data completely differently. Yeah, because it's not really, and there's a little bit of overlap, like Facebook users flow through in some respects, because you can see like friends who are playing this game. And so there's a little bit of overlap, but because it's so different, it just makes sense to think of it as like a completely different source of info. Cool. Lee, you talked a little bit about the origin of GraphQL. If you were creating GraphQL from scratch today, what do you think you would have done differently? Oh, that's such a good question. So we totally did make GraphQL from scratch again when we open sourced it. And I got to do that exact experiment. So GraphQL three years ago and GraphQL open sourced as of three months ago look pretty different from each other, actually. When we first built GraphQL three years ago, we built it fast. We did not realize that it was going to be a really important thing to how Facebook worked. It was really like an iOS newsfeed specific piece of technology. And we kind of built it in a month or two and then just kind of moved on. And as other teams started to use it and use it in different ways, we started to see all of the different use cases for GraphQL. And at Facebook, those have started to feel kind of patchy and inconsistent. So when we decided to open source, we realized that was our last real opportunity to make significant changes to the language. Um, and we took that opportunity. So we had a couple of months where we kind of went back to the drawing board and said, how much of this stuff is kind of accidental and incidental from what we originally decided? And how much of this should continue on? So the idea of the nested layers of querying and the idea that fields can have additional metadata sent to them in the open source GraphQL, we call those field arguments. At, in the Facebook version of GraphQL, we call them field calls. Similar kind of similar kind of functionality. And we've simplified the language itself. So the, what you see when you write GraphQL in the open source version is just much nicer to look at and simpler than what we're using internally at Facebook. And actually what I'm working on now is taking all these improvements that we made that we launched in open source and making sure that we're folding all of them back into Facebook so that we're using the same version at Facebook that people are using outside of Facebook. I'm really curious. Are you moving to React Native for your mobile apps? Um, we use React Native in a bunch of our mobile apps. So um, in different capacities, I don't think that we will ever have React Native as 100% of all of our apps. It's not the right technical decision. And actually, an important kind of cultural detail about how engineering works at Facebook, we build these tools like React Native and Relay and GraphQL, but the teams that use them, it's entirely up to them as to whether or not they use these tools or use something else. So, you know, if you're working on a new product at Facebook and you decide that Angular is the best technical choice, great, use that. We're going to build these things because we think that they'll be useful for you and we will help support you as you use them. But ultimately, if it's not the right technical choice, then go use something else, which means for our native development teams, they have a suite of technology they, they can use. They can use, of course, just, you know, Objective-C, they can use Swift, they can use React Native, they can use blends of these things as is most beneficial for what they're building. Um, so our ads manager is 100% React Native, and that's because they were kind of building in parallel the new version of the ads manager for the desktop and the ads manager for iOS. And then once they finished iOS, they got started on Android as well. 
And between the three platforms, web, iOS, and Android, about 85% of the code is completely shared. And the remaining 15% on each platform is kind of platform-specific user interface and logic. Our groups, we have a standalone groups application, and that's about 50-50. So about half the views are React Native, and half of them are native directly. Um, And then a handful of views are actually kind of hybrid. There's bits of React Native and bits of direct native. And, you know, you probably can't tell which is which. And then our main Facebook, iOS, and Android applications are just now experimenting with using React Native in some parts. Those apps are much more sensitive to newer technologies. They want to have things that are proven to be stable and perform at first, which is kind of why we started out with these other applications as testing grounds. But since those have gone well, I think we'll see a lot more teams at Facebook, hopefully outside of Facebook as well, start to use React Native in their apps. Awesome. We have a React Native show actually starting up on devchat.tv. Cool. Yeah, it's super interesting technology. Lee, I was at ElixirConf a few weeks back, and in my talk, I talked about what comes after REST, and I said it's GraphQL. But the interesting part was I was the third person to say that that day. Wow. (laughs) Awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about GraphQL at ElixirConf, and there's great buzz around it, which is fantastic because I really do think it's the interface of the future. I hope so. You know, it's still just the beginning. You know, we launched the spec as kind of a preview draft three months ago, and we had our reference implementation. We've kind of been iterating, improving, and adding things and taking feedback and and adding things. So I'm just so happy that there's buzz around this because it means that people are engaging with us and coming up with awesome ideas and really stress testing what we've built to make sure that it actually works for all the use cases they have. I expect that to kind of continue over the next, you know, months, even years as this thing improves. Uh, but I, yeah, I really hope that it becomes kind of a major piece of the architecture of how we build modern applications. I think it will. You mentioned something about the types earlier that I found interesting, that the types seem to be there to protect the server, not the client, because you can always return null. Mm-hmm. So the clients have got to do their own checks. Uh, but there's there's one other player in here that the types really serve, that when I saw your talk at React Rally, I was really impressed with. The types also serve the developer. You mentioned in terms of generating code based on them, and that's one way. But the other way was the interface that lets a client developer explore the API. Yeah, this is actually, I think, the most important part of having strong types. And you know, we're not the first ones to do this. Of course, a lot of languages that have strong types will generate documentation from those types. But we've kind of built GraphQL with first principles that things should be documented in code rather than parallel to the code. So rather than having, I write my code here, and then I write my documentation in this CMS over here, you write your documentation in line with writing your types. And that means that when you have that, it becomes just like part of the metadata of your server. And so you can generate a documentation browser, you can generate various kinds of useful tools. One of the things that we've done that's been pretty cool is we use that metadata in our IDEs, our client IDEs for iOS and Android, such that as you're kind of typing out GraphQL queries in line with the rest of the programming that you're doing, we can show you the descriptions for the field that you're typing as you're typing it. So we can do, you know, like code intelligence, um, but that code intelligence is not coming from your code base, it's coming from the server. So there's all kinds of really cool stuff you can do when you just assume that documentation is part of 
the metadata foundation of, of the server that you're building. And I should mention the tool that I'm sure you're referring to is graphical, which is, you know, graph IQL. We pronounce it graphical. And it's a tool that you can just kind of stick. If your server says that it implements GraphQL and it implements it with a single endpoint, then you can put this tool in front of it and it should just work. And it will give you an interactive IDE kind of experience in the browser where on one side of the screen you can type out queries and you get type aheads and you get live documentation. And then you kind of you know hit enter and it runs the query and it shows you the result on the other side. And it's just super useful for exploring what's possible in an API and kind of gut checking to make sure your queries work correctly before you then take those and paste them into your Relay application or iOS or Android application. It's super useful. We've been using it at Facebook for years, and we open-sourced it like a month and a half ago at React Rally, actually. That's where we relaunched it. And it's it's the thing that once you see it, you go, oh, that's how GraphQL works. I get it now, which is you know hard to do just explaining something. So totally useful. Check out Graphical. If people want to know more about GraphQL or GraphQL with Ruby, uh, where do they go? They can go to graphql.org. So graphql.org has links out to a bunch of the repositories that Facebook has put up. Um, it has links out to a lot of the repositories that the community has been maintaining for the GraphQL implementations in various languages. Uh, we have a Slack channel that we've been using, although we are closely running up to the maximum number of people that you can have in a Slack channel. So hopefully we can find kind of a successor for the Slack channel relatively soon. What's the uh, limit on that? I didn't even know there was one. Uh, I think it's 10,000. Oh, wow. And The successor we, to that is IRC. <laughs> the, the successor and predecessor to Slack is IRC, I think. Yes. Yeah, we were, we were using IRC before, and we like that Slack does formatting of text in a way that everyone is guaranteed to get the same kind of result. And is there a limit on Gitter.im? I don't know. I haven't looked into that as much. I know the Reactiflex group, which hosts Relay and React and React Native and a bunch of those channels all move to Discourse, I believe. So we may kind of investigate that. But we still have plenty of time, I think, before we'll hit up or limit on Slack. But certainly, if you're interested in asking more questions, check us out on Slack. There's usually a lot of people hanging out in that general channel. And usually, you'll get answers from the community long before someone from my team will We'll get to you, which is exactly how it should be. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Before we get to the picks, uh, we're going to give a quick mention to our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Code School. Code School is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, Code School has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use Code School to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can find more information at codeschool.com/rubyrogues. Jessica, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. This is my first week on Ruby Rogues as an employee of Stripe, so I'm Yay. going to pick San Francisco. Because it is such a lovely place to visit, especially when I don't have to pay for housing. And in particular, <laughs> I want to pick Dolores Park, where I happened to wind up on Sunday. And it was a sunny day. And there's just this huge park where people sit in the grass, on blankets or on the grass. And it's, it's as if they were at a concert, but there's no concert. 
They're just hanging out in the park. And it was really cool. So that's my pick. I love Dolores Park. All right. Well, Coraline, what are your picks? This is my first Ruby Rope since leaving Instructure and starting at HealthFinch, but my picks have nothing to do with that. <laughs> um, the first pick is a blog post by a guy named Greg Hio. It's called Outlining Your Talk Pixar Style. It talks about using a narrative to strengthen the structure of a talk. It's based on a piece of writing by Emma Coates, who is a freelance director formerly at Pixar, and describes a classic narrative structure of exposition, rising action, conflict and climax and resolution. The idea is that information is nice and stories are fun, but the best talks will inspire an audience to do something. So thinking about the story behind your talk reminds you to keep your audience's goals and your overall story in mind. And I'll link to that blog post in the show notes. My second pick is a website called Walnut, which is really a strange and neat kind of thing. It's a web-based algorithm visualizer. You have to sign up for an account in it. Once you sign up for an account, you can create a world defining um, a structure and the rules of the environment and the effect of the environment on agents' actions. You set a configuration of the world consisting of an initial state, which agents will interact and what their goals are. Then you program the logic for agents following the rules of the world. And at the end, you get a graphical display of what happened during your simulation. Um, they have a bunch of examples. There's a library of examples you can explore, including a TCP connection state machine, a graphical demo of the eight queens problem, and Langston's ant. So it's pretty cool. It's the walnut.io, and it's uh, something that you can kind of lose yourself in for a few hours as you build worlds and build your own simulations. So that's it for me. All right, David, what are your picks? Okay, I just have one pick today, and uh, I'm going to try not to ramble too much because we don't have, you know, 40 minutes for me to do this. A lot of you who have been following me on Twitter know that I've been getting into leather work lately. I've been uh, tooling, stamping, dyeing leather and making uh, various projects with it. And I fell in love with this on accident back in May. I just I, I saw a leather, simple leather project in a movie and I thought it was a journal and I thought I want one of those and I want to make it myself. So I walked into Tandy Leather Factory and that's my first pick is Tandy Leather Factory. They're at tandyleather.com and they saw me coming. They really did. I, I could have walked out of there with just a swatch of leather and a concho. That's the little metal stud that sticks up that you can like wrap a lace around. That's all I needed to make a journal. But uh, the gal that I talked to down there convinced me to buy half a hide, like 24 square feet of leather <laughs> and, you know, a hundred dollars worth of tools. And just, yeah, it's been five or six months. I've dumped over a thousand dollars on Tandy Leather uh, at that store. They know me by name because, well, I think they just call me the sucker when I'm not there. But <laughs> I've, I've really, really enjoyed getting into this hobby. I find it incredibly relaxing. I, I, I find it just soothing to just work with my hands. I'll, I'll go sit out in the front room. I've got a table set up as a workbench. Liz sits next to me. We stand up the laptop and we watch movies. And if you are interested in getting started with leather, I recommend tandyleather.com. I also recommend you go out to YouTube and search for Ian Atkinson. His YouTube I'll link to him in the show, but his YouTube username is Satan's Barber, and he runs Leotis Leather out of somewhere in England. He's got an amazing accent. It, it's it's not quite Scottish, but the word layers is just one syllable. It's L-E-H-S. It's just, you know, this project can have many les. Uh, it's just a fantastic accent, and he's been working leather for several years, and if you go back to his old stuff, he has 
beginner tools and he doesn't know what he's doing and it's fun to watch him evolve and learn. Bruce Cheney is also a fantastic YouTube person to watch. He's a old guy who's been doing uh, saddles his whole life and he started doing training videos and he's just a just a sweet guy that will just sit down and show you you know like for beginners these are the mistakes you're going to make and these are how you get really good results and his leather work is just amazing uh once you get into that you'll quickly realize that tandy leather is kind of the walmart of leather supplies a lot of their stuff is really good for the entry-level person but the more advanced stuff they don't often carry because it's too expensive kind of for their price point. So you're going to want some nicer quality leather and you're going to want some nicer tools. And you're also going to want a bunch of junk crap to practice on. So I'm going to give you how to go up and down in quality. To go up, a great place is Springfield Leather. And they're in Springfield, Missouri, I think. And they will ship you all the different kind of stuff that you need. And they have really good quality stuff. They have really great training videos and really nice staff. So I want to give them a big shout out. If you want to get a bunch of leather to play with, go to tandyleatheroutlet.com. That's where Tandy dumps all of their surplus stuff that they can't get rid of. And you can buy remnants. You can buy uh, vegetable tanned leather is the stuff that you can tool on. They sell it in black, natural, and white. And the the black stuff comes in belt of various width strips, and it comes in like the the round like holster end cutoffs, things that they cut off the bottom of hides. So you can end up with decent sized pieces to tool on and uh, lots of belt strips to work on. The only problem with black is that you can't dye black. It, it obviously doesn't work. So... Uh, but leather remnants tend to go for $5 a pound. So it's like 50 bucks for a 10 pound bag. And if you catch them on Tandy Leather Outlet, you can get 10 pounds for, or 50, yeah, you can get 10 pounds for $10. So I have like 75 pounds of scratch leather, uh, sitting around my house to, to play with and work with. So a lot of fun, fantastic hobby to get into. I highly recommend it and good luck. Have fun. All right. I'll go ahead and make a couple of picks here. The first one is I've been getting into a system called Ionic, Ionic Framework. It's based on Angular. It is hybrid apps. It's built on Cordova, uh, which is an Apache project. It used to be called PhoneGap. And it's it's been a lot of fun to dig into. And so uh, I'm going to pick that. And yeah, that's, that's all I've really got today. I'm also posting stuff uh, related to what I've got going on on Periscope. So if you want to check that out, all of that's at charlesmaxwood.com. Finally... Rails Remote Conf. I do want to talk about that for a minute. Initially, there were going to be 12 sessions. There are now going to be 15 sessions. We've added three sessions just because I had some awesome people come through and I couldn't say no to them. So I said yes to them. And so really excited about that. Jessica and Coraline are both speaking at that. And uh, it will. it's just going to be awesome. So uh, make sure you go to railsremoteconf.com and get your ticket. One other thing uh, that you may want to keep an eye out for as this comes out is that I am going to be doing a remote conference every month next year. I had a lot of people asking for it, and so I decided to go for it. They're about all kinds of things. Obviously, I'm doing Ruby, Rails, JavaScript, Angular, and iOS, and freelancing, since I have shows for those. I'm also doing Git, NoSQL, PostgreSQL. I think I'm doing PostgreSQL, uh, podcasting, and a couple of others. So that's going to be at allremoteconfs.com. It's not up as we record this, but it will be up within a few weeks of getting this done. So it should be out pretty close to when this comes out. So if you're looking for opportunities to go and learn from folks who are kind of up there and out there in the community, 
give great talks about topics you're interested in without having to travel, then uh, go check that out. But uh, I am doing JS Remote Conf in January, and the CFP for that is actually open right now. Cool. And yeah, enough about my stuff. Lee, what are your picks? Let's see. I have two things to toss into the pile here. One is Flowtype. Flowtype is another Facebook project, not by my team, but one that our team loves to use, which adds a type system to JavaScript. So all the love of type systems on top of our uh, you know, fun, dynamic JavaScript. It's helped find and fix tons and tons of problems in a lot of the open source software that we've been writing. And uh, it will do similar magic for your stuff. So definitely go check out Flowtype. You can find that at flowtype.org, I believe. And the other is a book called The Fire Steel, which is a fiction novel and super fun. It's got a love story, time travel, and it's set in many different era of history, Greek, uh, Roman, modern day, and everything in between. And it's super fun. So that book just came out last week, and it's one of my favorites. So check out The Fire Steel, and that's thefiresteel.com. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming, Lee, and thanks to all of our uh, regular panelists for coming as well. We'll go ahead and wrap this show up. And we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.